Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, making it through the pandemic. I'll speak with the founders of a Georgia-based beverage startup and how they changed their business model to sell bottled lemonade. Also, Mike Russell, a veteran in law enforcement and the military, talks about why he's running for Atlanta City Council president. And in just a moment, we'll have reaction to an early proposed draft of new congressional district lines here in Georgia. All those conversations coming up. But first, this, as you heard on NPR, Robert Long, the man accused of killing eight people at Atlanta area massage businesses, pleaded not guilty today to four of the killings. From our WABE newsroom, it's reported Long already received four life sentences after pleading guilty in Cherokee County. Now, here in Atlanta, Long faces the death penalty where he's accused of shooting and killing four of his eight victims. Long's charges include murder, aggravated assault and domestic terrorism. Appearing today in Fulton County Court, Long waived arrangement and entered a not guilty plea. Now, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has said she's also seeking a sentencing enhancement under Georgia's new hate crimes law. Most of Long's victims were Asian women. In other news, the state Senate released a draft of new congressional districts yesterday, and they show some significant changes to the 6th and 7th districts held by Democrats in suburban Atlanta. There are some minor changes in the other 12 districts across Georgia. Janet Grant with the advocacy group Fair Districts Georgia said the group will analyze the changes against a set of criteria it created with Princeton University. The timeliness of our benchmarks is certainly proving true. We will be able to compare our benchmarks to this map, um, hopefully within um, a very short uh, period of time. In Georgia, the Republican-controlled legislature gets to draw new districts. Lawmakers will start meeting November 3rd to vote on new congressional state house and Senate districts. Finally, more than 80,000 first responders and members of law enforcement are set to receive a one-time $1,000 bonus beginning in October. Governor Brian Kemp announced a statewide grant program Monday. All total, $100 million in bonuses will come out of the federal COVID relief funds. Similar bonuses were awarded to public school teachers and many state employees earlier this year. Now, Governor Kemp described serious challenges faced by law enforcement and first responders during the pandemic including recruiting and retention crisis. Others may talk of defunding your departments, slashing your budgets, or vilifying your profession. Not here in Georgia. Uh, The bonuses are also available for firefighters, EMTs, as well as correctional officers. And a programming note, making his Closer Look debut on tomorrow's program, Governor Brian Kemp. 
he will be a guest. We will focus on the state's response to the pandemic. We'll look back on his achievements and challenges so far and what lies ahead. Again, Governor Brian Kemp will be a guest tomorrow, making his Closer Look debut here at 1 p.m. As mentioned, the state Senate released a draft of new, of new congressional district lines yesterday, and they so show some significant changes to that 6th and 7th districts held by Democrats. Now, joining me now with his analysis, we haven't heard from him in a while, but he's Atlanta-based political strategist and analyst Fred Hicks. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be back. Still got your dog? I do. I do. He is uh, he is growing. He is uh, eight months, almost nine months old now. Uh, we're glad that you came over to the adopt a pet side, Fred. Uh, before <laughs> before we get into your reaction, let's talk about the process, because there was so much made about the state Senate committee that held public comments before the census data was released, which is used for redrawing the process anyway. Through your lens, should the committee have waited and maybe held public comment after the data was released from the census? What do you think? Well, you know, I think one of the surprises already is that they released these maps right now when they did. The special session that the governor called for redistricting is not until November 3rd. And I think many of us thought that the maps would be released somewhere right around November 2nd, maybe at 11.50 p.m. So the fact that they are released more than a month ahead of time is actually quite uh, quite interesting, surprising. Um, and it might be an early sign that there's a little bit of flexibility with respect to how the districts are drawn. I think it's also a nod to the fact that there's a Democratic DOJ and that there are sure to be lawsuits around these. So putting these maps out early, getting public, getting public input, um, I'm sure is a, at least part of it is designed to buttress against uh, the upcoming lawsuits. Now, again, we should mention this is all proposed, but let's get your thoughts on those districts I mentioned coming in. It appears it appears that uh, look, the GOP could maybe want to hope or hoping to get a swing in the sixth and seventh districts. Absolutely. You know, Rose, what's interesting about this is that Democrats picked up these two seats, the sixth and the seventh in the last few years. They have traditionally been held by Republicans. They picked up uh, Lucy McBath defeated Karen Handel in 2018, and Carol Bordeaux defeated Rich McCormick in 2020, which helped cement or solidify the Democratic majority in the in the U.S. House. Um, looking at it right now, including the seats that are vacant, if everything goes as is, Democrats should have a plus nine majority, which means that you only have to flip five seats. And so if you can take one seat in Georgia, along with the other places across the, across the country, particularly Texas and Florida, then Republicans tend to really get chance of getting getting the uh, majority back in the U.S. Congress, which means having a new speaker. Um, practically speaking, here in Georgia, what's interesting about the lines that they've drawn is that uh, for Congresswoman McBath, mm-hmm. what, when you do redistricting, one of the things you have to do is each district has, a, has to have the same number of people in it, roughly, uh, plus or minus generally a, a half a percent or something of that nature. And so the preliminary database on the census showed that Carolyn Bordeaux was about 94, 95,000 people over, and Lucy McBath was pretty much spot on with where she needs to be with respect to the population. And so the way that these maps are drawn, to see that Carolyn Bordeaux was pretty much solidified and Lucy McBath's district is changing drastically, yeah. really interesting. Um, it's extremely interesting that, that that happened that way. Well, let's focus on um, Congresswoman McBath and, and that district for a second. So if the way that the lines are drawn now, given that that there's a more conservative base that she would now inherit in a sense, 
gives the a nod to you know, she already I believe has one challenger correct maybe two uh she has several challengers seven. she has uh jake evans megan hansen and uh, i think there's one one or two other declared uh persons already so it's a pretty crowded field on the republican side now jake evans who's been a guest on this show so many times is considered uh, you know this is how they put it the kind of the new republican party the future of the republican party uh, his father has some ties uh, some long political ties um what do we know about hansen so Megan Hansen represented a portion of DeKalb and, and uh, Fulton in the state house. Uh, she defeated a one-term uh, Democratic state rep to, to take a hold of that seat. I think she served two terms there, and she lost to, I believe it was Michael Walensky, who's now in that seat. Mm-hmm. After she lost mm-hmm. her seat there, and she's also a young attorney, I should say that, as is Jake Evans. Mm-hmm. Um, after she mm-hmm. lost her seat there, she went over to the Georgia chamber uh, where she helped build out and uh, continues to work on building out their um, their campaigns. So the Georgia Chamber will support candidates, particularly pro-business candidates, at various levels for various seats, and she has played an integral role in that. So I think this is very interesting when you have Jake Evans, son of Randy Evans, who was an ambassador to Luxembourg, appointed by Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and used to be at Denton, one of the biggest uh, political law firms in the really in the country with respect to the influence that it exerts. So you have that. Uh, and Jake, you know, was the chair of the uh, of the Ethics Commission. Mm-hmm. So you have one person mm-hmm. there. Then you have Megan Hansen, who's also young, um, who's also an attorney, and who has uh, deep ties to the business community. So that's going to make for a very interesting Republican primary to see how that plays out with these two young guns on the Republican side gunning for the same um the same position. Is this going to be a situation where each one will try to out-conservative the other one, so to speak? Well, that's a great question. You know, Jake has already uh, taken a little bit more of a conservative swing from what people have uh, known him to be uh, in his public comments since he left the commission and declared for the seat. Uh, Megan, of course, was a a right-leaning, but people felt that they could work with her when she was in the in the state house, representing again DeKalb and that Brookhaven portion of Atlanta um, or Fulton County. So it's going to be really interesting. I think that looking at the way that President Trump is developing his slate uh, for for Georgia with Jody Heiss and, and Herschel Walker and Donald um, Burt Jones, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that he will look to also play in congressional seats because hey, remember it's the House that can impeach a president. So it was the Democratic House that impeached uh, President Trump twice. And there's already been discussion in the House about uh, impeaching President Biden over Afghanistan. And so as President Trump looks to mount a comeback in 24, uh, a rematch rather against against uh, Biden, if he can have a House that's favorable to him and one that with people that he has supported, then perhaps he could even, you know, support a, an impeachment against Biden to try to level the field going into the 24 election. So there's a lot on the line with this. So the Republicans, in a sense, needing to flip as many seats as possible, uh, Mc, Lucy McBath's seat obviously being the one they want what's the count right now they like plus 10 plus 9 fred the Uh, democrats so right so right now plus plus nine there are three vacant seats uh two of them are held by democrats one by republican and so we think that once those are filled they will they will remain the same and that will give democrats a plus nine which means that republicans have to flip five seats um, and, the, and the House to take the majority. But right <clears throat> right now, you have 212 Democrats to 212 Republicans, so an eight-vote swing. But again, 
when the vacant uh, vacant slots are filled, it will, it will the Democrats should gain one seat there. So you're really talking about just winning across the entire country, four to five seats. That's it. Not just in one state or one region across the entire country. And Republicans then have control of the House, which deals with social issues, finance issues and impeachment. So, Fred, let me ask you this. So it appears one could make the assumption that looking at this proposed map, uh, the GOP, in case they are, were going to be, you know, accused of obviously trying to redraw the district to favor a Republican candidate, then they could come back and say, well, no, because look at uh, Carolyn Bardot's district. She's going to inherit even more of a more liberal base. Is that your is that your analysis as well? Absolutely. Uh, that. The, it was a smart draw on the part of Republicans. And if you look at what's happening right now in, in D.C. around the debate for the spending bill and, and president's agenda, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux has drawn the ire of the left by being more moderate um, with respect to the budget negotiations. And there's been a lot of chatter from the left about, hey, you know, she's not representing us and she's she's playing too, too coy with Republicans. Whereas Lucy McBath has pretty much gone the party line. She is definitely a, a Nancy Pelosi type of Democrat. And so you actually, I think Republicans are taking, taking two bites at one apple here. Number one, they're getting closer to the majority uh, by drawing, by picking up a seat. But then also, uh, in case that they do not win the majority, they are favoring the more moderate of the two Democrats and one who's shown that she's willing to work with them. So that's a very interesting move, not one that I think uh, many people, myself included, are coming. Fred, one thing that you always tell me that you love to do, I don't know why, because to me it sounds very like it's a lot of work, but you love to do polling. Um, will you do some polling now based on this map? Absolutely, because the interesting thing about this is that Forsyth County is trending more and more blue Democrat. And so that what they did with Lucy McBath is they took her out of DeKalb County. And that was important because when she defeated Karen Handel, she lost Cobb County, she lost Fulton County, but it was DeKalb County that took her over the hump and gave her and put her in office. And so taking DeKalb County away from her and drawing her more east-west in Forsyth County, which is far more conservative by any stretch than than, than DeKalb County, makes it more difficult. But, but again, uh, Forsyth County has, has had a tremendous population boom. And um, as some people are quoted as saying, this if Republicans pick up this seat, it might only be for one or two cycles. So by the time we get to the, mid, the mid-decade uh, review, that could very well be a Democratic seat again, much like the 6th Congressional was solidly Republican for eight of those years, well, seven of those years uh, from this last decade, and then it flipped and it was solidly blue. So this is a, this is a temporary fix to to an issue that that they that they're dealing with. Now I want to be really clear. You did you just say you thought Forsyth County was? You you said it's very conservative, but then before that you said you thought it was trending a little bit toward blue. Well, when it goes from 90, 95 percent conservative to 75 percent conservative Republican, you know, it's moving more and more in that direction. You gotta, and you got to remember. Uh, Cobb County, where, where Congresswoman McBath lives, is completely blue now, right, which changed over the last four years. Hillary Clinton won, but she didn't get over 50 percent. Stacey Abrams, mid-50s, and last year, Democrats won everything in Cobb County. North Fulton is also has also become more Democratic, um, and she has a portion of that in the district. So it's about the cumulative number of votes. So if you can find your places here and there, and I'm, I'll be really interested to look at the precinct-level data, to assess whether or not she has, or how likely it is that she can hold on to the seat. 
But again, looking at everything that's happening in Forsyth County over the, and has happened over the last five years, it is definitely becoming more democratic. So this whole 10, 13, 15 county metro region is becoming more and more difficult for Republicans to carve out a conservative base. Fred, as we wrap up then, given your insight and your analysis of all this, how do you see this playing out? Will Lucy McBath have a, a, a challenge in trying to retain her seat? Absolutely. Just simply taking away DeKalb County made it more difficult for her. So in, in whichever way they, whichever way they should, the, 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 the district finally ends up, um, if it does not include DeKalb County, it's going to be a tougher road for her. Um, but 2020 is going to, 2022 is going to be an interesting year. Presumably you'll have a very competitive governor's race um, in Georgia. We know that you're going to have a super competitive U.S. Senate race. Um, and you have other other candidates up and down the line, Lieutenant Governor, SOS, and things like that. So, you know, 22 is going to go a long way into determining 24. It's like the, the prologue to 2024. And um, and so you're going to, and for, for Donald Trump, this is his pathway back to power. So, and for Democrats, and this is the pathway towards um, establishing or putting away Trumpism. So it's gonna be really, really interesting. And that, like we talked about last year when we said it'd be a billion dollar election. Mm -hmm. This this is because now we're gonna, the battle for the Senate will come to Georgia and potentially the battle for the House will be in Georgia as well. You're gonna see close to, I'm gonna say it now, we're gonna have another $750 billion election next year. Um, here in Georgia, and we'll control the direction of the of the country. Mm. Atlanta-based political strategist and analyst Fred Hicks, as always, Fred, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, twenty twenty-two covering that should be interesting. Should be interesting. Thank you, Rose. Take care. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Well, speaking of elections, on November 2nd, the city of Atlanta will have its municipal general elections will be held. There are some other elections taking place as well. Now, of course, the big race here in Atlanta is the mayoral contest. But we also know there are city council seats and the Atlanta Board of Education seats and Atlanta City Council president as well. As we continue with our one-on-one conversations with those candidates vying to become Atlanta's next city council president, and in no particular order, solely based on the scheduling availability of the candidates, joining me now is a newcomer, but a veteran in law enforcement and military, Mike Russell. Mr. Russell, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rose, for having me. Let's begin here uh, just with an overview as to why you're running for Atlanta city council president. (laughs) Well, it was a bit of a surprise to myself that I entered uh, politics. I'm not a politician. Uh, this all started last year when I was yelling at the television, and my husband said to me, they cannot hear you. Um, if you want to do something, 
you need to get off the couch and go do something because uh, yelling is not going to solve anything. So I got involved and started volunteering, uh, started uh, going to police stations, uh, trying to show them some support. And I started expressing my opinions on uh, social media. And very surprising to me, I gained a following and those folks started asking me to run for political office uh, based on my experience um, with things like crime and city management and budgeting. <clears throat> and after a while, I did decide to run it. And so here I am. You said you were yelling at the television. What was taking place? What were you seeing? Uh, the destruction of our city. You know, Atlanta is the cradle of the nonviolent civil rights movement. And that means something to me. And I was just horrified at what was happening in our city. Um, and I wanted it to stop. And so um, at my husband's prompting, I got off the uh, sofa and started going out in the city and trying to connect with people and do my part to try to bring this city back together. You're referring to the the protests that were taking place um, and then the, the aftermath when some of those turned into some destruction. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. And um, that touched me personally because a friend of ours uh, shop was uh, hurt by that. And then the businesses around us, you know, the um, target that we normally go to was destroyed. And so this was not something that you see on the television that happens in someone else's city. This was happening in our backyard. So I want to be clear, your your frustration was with for those that turned it into destruction, but not the actual protest. Or were you upset with the protest in terms of as it relates to policing in black and brown communities, primarily black communities. And of course, all this on the heels of the death of George Floyd. So I just want to be clear in terms of what was the prompt for you? What were you actually upset with? It was the violence. Mm -hmm. um, everybody has the right to protest. You know, I served in the military for almost 30 years to guarantee our uh, uh, freedoms, uh, particularly our freedom of uh, speech. And so that was not of concern to me. Mm -hmm. What was of concern was that our city was being ripped apart and, and the violence. You tweeted, quote, my vision is to elevate our city to the next level from sidewalks to security. Excellence is the standard. We have to start with getting the basics right, close quote. So, Mr. Russell, what are those basics? Where do you propose we begin? I think with law and order, with public safety, I believe that is the first responsibility of government. And right now in our city, we're failing at that, as are other places around the country. I think we have to get our roads and bridges fixed. Um, I've said this before, and, and I don't mean to insult anybody, but I've lived in a lot of places around the world, and I've never lived in a Western city that is as raggedy as Atlanta. Uh, we have plenty of money, but we're not doing what needs to be done when it comes to city services and when it comes to our infrastructure. Um, and that has got to change, and it's got to change now. Why is Atlanta raggedy? Because I don't believe that people are being held to account. Um, as I watched the budgeting process last year, I saw council members voting to spend massive amounts of money without ever reading the bill. They didn't even know what they were voting for, and they were spending our tax dollars. Um, I've done these things before in city management. Um, the last base that I was on, our team was recognized as the very best in the United States Army worldwide for the city services that we provided to our residents. And we did that, we didn't receive any additional funding or personnel, we did that because we changed our attitude about how we budgeted our money and how we treated our residents. Our residents became customers. 
And that changed everybody's attitude when they dealt with the issues that our customers had. And so I think we need to take a totally new approach to how we uh, account for our uh, budgeting process and that we hold the mayor and, and the new mayor's administration accountable for the money that they spend in this city. Let me ask you this, because um, I want to go back to something that you said, but speaking of budgeting and you saying <clears throat> hold the next mayor and that administration accountable, you know, and in the current form of structure, that the mayor holds the authority here. So how do you propose as being city council president you can do that? Well, the budget has to go through the city council. Sure. And what I would do to work with the mayor and others, because I think there's a hunger for this in our, our city right now, is that they, when they come to present their budget, they have to tell us what exactly they are going to do for the residents of Atlanta, to what standard they're going to do it, and then we hold them accountable to, the, uh, to that standard. So, for example, uh, solid waste collection. What do you need to pick up trash once a week? You know, I need X number of personnel, I need X number of trucks, I need this software, whatever it is, you lay it out and you tell me how much that costs. And then the city council can make a determination of how much money you get. But what I've seen is people come in, they ask for money, there is no tie to performance, there's no tie to services provided. I've done budgeted budgets in the army under the federal system, which are far more stringent. And to be quite frank, I would have been relieved of duty if I had presented a budget in the manner that we've done this in this city over and over again. I want to go back to something that you said, because I don't want to I don't want to make sure I want to make sure I don't forget this. You mentioned law and order. And I believe that, you know, that sometimes when that narrative is used, it can invoke a lot of different responses. So when you say restore or implement law and order, I want to give you an opportunity to take that further for our listeners. What do you mean by that? I mean that everybody in the city of Atlanta ought to feel safe on their streets, in their homes, in the places that they go for entertainment. And what is a fact in our city is that the majority of people who are victims of violent crime happen to be black. And that has been the case for many a year. Um, This has become an issue because the crime has spread throughout the city. So when I talk about keeping people safe, I'm talking about those ladies that called in to the city council begging for help that sounded like my mother or my grandmother or my auntie that were begging for police to come and help uh, clean up their neighborhoods to make them safe again. And so when I speak about that, I'm talking about everybody in the city of Atlanta, whether we're talking about Adamsville, Bankhead, Buckhead, it's everybody deserves to feel safe in their neighborhood and in their homes. And we also know that the majority of people who live behind burglar bars are in our predominantly brown and black neighborhoods. And I want to turn that around. Okay, so let's let's focus on that for a second then, because everyone has a plan. At least they say they had a plan about reducing the crime. But sounds to me like you're also saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, you want to look at the systemic problem as to why folks are committing the crime or why there's crime in certain areas. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So one of the things I've done is I've gone around and I've talked to uh, folks who run programs that are successful. And one of the the newcomers to our area is a guy by the name of um, Fontaine, uh, Myron Fontaine. He runs a program called the Prison Doctor. And he and I are working right now to form a strategy with others so that we can get to the root cause of this crime through prevention. Because... uh, Public safety is not just about locking people up. Uh, There's three elements that I've learned over my career to uh, public safety. And the first one is prevention. 
So his program, which I, I think is fantastic, it not only deals with the youth, but it goes into the home and it deals with in a holistic fashion, the environment that they're in. You know, a lot of our kids, I mean, they've been traumatized by the environment that they're in. And we need to acknowledge that. And then we need to have effective measures to address that um, so that these kids can get over what they've seen and heard and experienced. And so that they know that there's hope for them, that we care and we love them and we want to do something for them and that they can make it in life, that they can achieve and that they do not have to turn to a life of crime. But it's not just kids who are committing the crime, though, Mr. Russell. You you acknowledge that as well, correct? I mean, yes, some, there are a lot. There's some adults, there's some old folks older than me and you out there committing crimes, too. So as it relates to your policy, if you were if you were on city council and what you wanted to push, is there some type of legislation that you would want to see passed by your council because you don't have a vote that you would support that would help reduce the crime? And what is that? You're talking about just more programs for youth, but it's not just youth. No, it's it has to be at all stages. So uh, prevention starts on a very young age. The second thing is, if you decide to go out and engage in criminal activity, there has to be a serious consequence. And part of the problem in our community, not just in Atlanta proper, but across the county in the metro area, is that there's some crimes that are committed repeatedly and there's no consequence. A good example of that is uh, car break-ins. You know, the sheriff's car was broken into. You break into a car, you get a slap on the wrist, you're back out on the street. That's gotta change. We've gotta change the ordinance. So that if you commit this crime, there's a serious consequence. Another one are these troublesome venues where a lot of the crime and violence emanates. Right now, they pay a fine, maybe. They can have multiple violations, they stay open. So uh, my proposal is to have legislation prepared on day one that of course would be sponsored by others, but that would be ready day one that says, if you are in violation of code uh, X number of times, a reasonable number of times, you are padlocked until you go to court and explain why you are not a nuisance or a hazard to the public, because that will change the business practices of a lot of these venues because they cannot make money when they're padlocked. And so they will clean themselves up in, in large degree. Uh, we need to take a look at the licensing board uh, for liquor license and such. I think we need to strengthen. Uh, there's a study, as you know, currently of the NPUs. We need to strengthen the role of the MPUs in their community. So what, what the citizens and residents of the community want carry more weight than uh, folks who are making an arbitrary decision that may not impact their daily lives and that of their families. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Mike Russell. He's a newcomer to politics, but a veteran in law enforcement and military. Talking about why he's running for Atlanta City Council president. Let's. I want to talk about leadership for a moment because you, you mentioned, look, you know, I, I'm new to politics. But if you were elected, let's just say you were elected Atlanta City Council president, what is your leadership style? Because you would be working with some folks who are veterans and some who are not, but some who may question, you know, what can you do as Atlanta City Council president leading us when you still have to learn just the basics, the overall basics of how a a city council operates in general? What would you say to that? People Uh, question your leadership style. Well, first, my leadership philosophy has been that I will not fail those whom I serve. And that has stood true for the soldiers that I've led in combat, it's stood true for their families that I've taken care of, and it will stand true for the residents of Atlanta. I've also worked in a lot of diverse places. I've worked and negotiated from the tribal level, you might have seen some of the pictures on my website, mm-hmm. all the way up to the international level. So I know I've, and I'm not just trying to brag, but I've done this before numerous times, 
to bring people together with uh, diverse interests and competing interests so that we can sit around the table and come up with a solution that is actually going to happen, that can be implemented. So I can learn Robert's rules of order and the other things, but what is lacking in our city is leadership that is focused on results. And that's what I intend to bring to the table. There are gonna be at least five new council members mm -hmm. uh, joining the city council. And I think this is a chance, this is an opportunity, this is a window of opportunity for us to turn this city around and make it better uh, for all of us. How did you bring everyone together? You said you've done this before with your leadership style, you brought people together, how'd you do it? Listening, um, learning the environment, understanding what is important to other people because everybody sees things through a different lens based on a variety of, of, of issues. And then being able to reach across the table and come up with a, a common understanding and a common goal. Um, I've dealt with people who hated each other for centuries. Um, I brought Poles and Germans together. Um, it was not easy, um, but you, it, it takes time, it takes finesse, um, and it takes a lot of uh, patience to do it. Unfortunately, in our city, there's some things that we don't have a lot of time to um, uh, correct, mm -hmm. uh, particularly with the crime. But I'm confident, uh, because I've done this before, in cultures where I didn't even speak the language, that I can do it here in the city of Atlanta. You know, it's interesting, uh, Mr. Russell, when we've, and all these candidates have said the same thing in terms of they want to bring people together. But as you know, uh, it's not easy to change folks' mindset. And when you talk about, because you just called Atlanta raggedy earlier now, that, that's not going to sit too well <laughs> with some folks. So if you're going to bring folks together by calling the city raggedy, I don't know if that's going to help you or not. But when you talk about seeing things that, that aren't right and you wanting to to take a stand that prompted you to become, to, to, to run for Atlanta city council president. What do you want folks to know then about your commitment to this? Um, obviously you, you love the city. You live here, right? Yes. I mean, uh, when my husband and I decided to uh, move back from Europe, we traveled around the country. We could have moved literally anywhere. And uh, the last night we were in a hotel, we made a list and I asked him to put down his choices for the best city to live and the best city as a tourist spot because those are different, just to keep them clear. Mm -hmm. So we both wrote down our list. We both had two. And then when we presented them to each other, we both had Atlanta at the top of our list as the best place to live. Um, and I still believe this is the best place to live. So uh, my efforts are going to be to make this a better city. My, you know, my campaign slogan, those are just not... Uh, empty words, mm -hmm. to make this city safer and better for all of us. When you look at Atlanta City Council and some of the things they've done in the past, can you point to something that you thought, some legislation or something they did that was that was positive, that you thought was a step in the right direction? Uh, I think the fact that they finally uh, passed the ordinance to build the uh, uh, first responder training center was very contentious and I'm very happy that the city council finally stood up and uh, voted to pass that measure. But you said just a moment ago, you have to listen to NPUs and community organizations and many of them did not want that training facility. That's true. But I looked at the facts on this and I also looked at the arguments against it. So the facts in that case are 
that the police are already training there. The weapons training facility is there, the unexploded ordnance facility is there, and that the current residents have no access to this area, which is about 300 acres. So um, the plan is, and I do know for a fact that all the residents were, were uh, notified. Um, the plan is, is that about a third of that property will be turned into the training facility, about 85 acres. The portion that will become a new park will be bigger than Piedmont Park. Let me say that again. The portion of the park that they will receive without charge will be bigger than Piedmont Park. The uh, hazardous waste from illegal dumping in the water around the park to the north side of the park, that will be cleaned up at no expense to them. They're gonna have urban gardens. They'll have a, a petting zoo and they'll have a trail that leads all the way back up to the Beltline. Um, but the, couldn't they have the, done the, that without a training facility? I'm just curious. Through your lens, you think that could have happened anyway? You, you, because and I keep going back to what you said. Because if you're going to make a statement and call Atlanta raggedy, you got to look at what they haven't done prior to wanting to build this police training facility. I mean, couldn't they have done that without? Just asking. They could have, but they didn't for years. For years, they've promised these people a park, and they didn't do it. So it took a civilian organization to step up to the plate to raise the money uh, to make this happen. And so the benefit of this is, is that we get a, a first class training facility for our first responders and the people in that area finally, after a lot of empty and broken promises, get their green space, which is going to be bigger than Piedmont Park. So I think this is a win win. And oh, by the way, the taxpayers are not paying the 60 to 80 million dollars that this is going to cost. Well, the city so of Atlanta does, will have to. Well, now, Mr. Russell, the city of Atlanta will have to kick in some money. I, I do believe that that's correct. They will have Correct, to but they, but the sixty to eighty million dollars for the facility and the cleanup, the city of Atlanta is not paying that. Well, they still got to um, kick in about thirty million. That's that's a nice chunk, right? Well, you were going to have to do that anyway because the two facilities that the police and the fire were in have been abandoned because they were in such uh, bad conditions. You know, the fire department had to leave their facility because the roof was caving in. Uh, students were becoming sick from the mold and the mildew. The police had to leave their facility because of the roof caving in, rats, uh, raw sewage coming up out of the floor, and, and contaminated water. How did our city government, and, it, and, it, and it's not just this mayor, I want to be clear, mm -hmm. um, this has been a long time issue. How did they allow that to happen, that it became so bad that our first responders had to abandon their training facilities because they were not fit uh, for humans to occupy? So I think that actually, um, the Atlanta Police Foundation has sort of come to the rescue because the city was going to have to do something anyway, and they actually saved us a lot of money by kicking in this 60 to $80 million um, that the city is not going to have to pay. One more thing as relates to public safety, because we're all aware of the Buckhead, and I think it's only fair because I've asked all the candidates this question. I want to make sure I get it into you. Uh, we know what's happening with the, the Buckhead City Movement. Clearly, you may understand the the reason, but do you support this Buckhead City movement? Can do you support that community wanting to cut itself away from the city of Atlanta? No, and it's very hurtful that they even want to do that. I understand why they want to do it. They have the same concerns that everybody else in the city has. And uh, my answer to folks who've asked me that same question is, I want them to stay in the city of Atlanta. But ultimately, it's probably going to be up to the residents of Buckhead whether or not that happens. 
So what we need to do is we need to get our act together. Mm -hmm. We need to provide public safety to everybody, not, excuse me, not just to Buckhead, but to everybody, like I said before. And we need to provide the city services to everybody, not just Buckhead, that everybody pays for, that everybody deserves. And I believe that the majority of folks in Buckhead actually want to stay a part of this city. But many of them that I've spoken to feel like they don't have a choice. They feel like they're not listened to and that this is the only way to get anybody's attention is to uh, have this vote about leaving the city. I've actually had several people tell me that um, they believe that they should have the vote, but they're not necessarily sure that they would vote to leave. And I think the way we change that, the way we convince them to stay is to get our act together and do the things that city government should be doing it and we do it well. And finally, as we wrap up, for listeners who are not familiar with you and they say, well, Mike Russell, why should we even vote for you to become Atlanta's next city council president? What do you say? Because I'm a guy that can get things done. By the way, the, in the poll that was taken of, of uh, candidates for this office, I'm in first place. And the reason for that is I bring in what a poll? What poll was that? From uh, 11 Alive. Uh, poll done by 11 Alive. And uh, I'm in first place, a political newcomer, uh, entered the race last of the major candidates and raised the least amount of money. But I'm in first place because the message is resonating. It's authentic. It's real. And I will, I'm the kind of guy that will not just talk about things, but will get things done. And I will ask this of your listeners. Please go to my website, MikeRussellAtlanta.com. Okay. All, All the right. And you can contact me and I'll come to you and answer the hard questions. If it's five or 500, I will come to you and answer those hard questions face to face. All right, Mike Russell, newcomer to politics, but he wants to be your next Atlanta City Council president, veteran in law enforcement military. Mr. Russell, thank you for coming on the program and answering the questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you so very much for having me. Social continues now here on 90.1. As always, I'm Rose Scott. In the words of Albert Hubbard, who allegedly said, quote, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. I don't know who Albert Hubbard is, but during my research, I found out he was considered the original hippie at the turn of the 19th century. Do what you want with that piece of information. Now, speaking of lemonade, a Georgia-based beverage startup is trying to get in on the lemonade market. Peach State Drinks was founded in 2019. Then came the pandemic. So how's this young business making it thus far? Well, let's welcome co-founder and CEO Nikesia Pinnell and Choya Johnson, co-founder and CFO of Peach State Drinks. And uh, full note of disclosure, I was walking through Pond City Market. I saw these folks at a table with some lemonade. And I said, what y'all doing? <laughs> That's pretty much what I said, right, Nikesia? <laughs> Yes, ma'am, you sure did. After I asked, <laughs> yeah, well, what y'all know about this music you were playing? Uh, about the music. Right. Yep. Welcome to Key Central. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit. So what prompted you all to come up with your own type of lemonade? Because, you know, in, in Georgia, we got lemonade and we got tea and you put together, you know, that's that's like. I know. That, yeah, that's, we get a good Arnold Palmer. There you go. So but what prompted, <laughs> what prompted you all to come up with uh, Peach State Drinks? Uh, well, when we started in 2019, I think, so there's two layers to this story. I think one of the things where um, Troy comes from a tech background and by trade, I'm a journalist. So I think when we both began, it was kind of like, 
what else could we do? What else is past this? Because if I left today or tomorrow, if Troya left today or tomorrow, at the time it was like, what do we really have that's ours? Because these jobs, though they're ours right now, they're not really ours, right? These people could fire us any day. They could do what they want to do. Um, so what could we have that could be ours? So that was part of it. And then the other part was, we really like lemonade, like <laughs> love lemonade. But the key was we wanted to, and like you said, there's a whole bunch of people here that do uh, lemonade or they do tea and they do different things. And we wanted to make sure that we created something that was delicious, but also had its own type of lane to go into. And that's pretty much how we came up with this. Lemonade is something that we both love from our childhood and is very nostalgic. So we wanted to create something that would make people feel the same way about 15, 20 years down the line. I can't believe you gave up a career as a journalist to make lemonade, but that's okay. <laughs> Choi, let me... I got you because if I could come up with my own barbecue sauce, I would. Uh, Choya, let's bring you into the conversation. You have a tech background. Um, you all started this. So take us through the process of how you all came up with how your lemonade was going to be different. Well, um, when we came up with the idea, we wanted to make it, we wanted to have something different on the market um, that would kind of set us apart uh, we had been trying different lemonades at the time and everybody's lemonade just wasn't, it wasn't that good. Oh, now, good. now, here you go. <laughs> it, 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 it was good, but in some cases you would have the inconsistency where it wasn't always good. And then you would have some where it just wasn't good enough. <laughs> so we wanted to try to figure out how we could bridge that gap and make this, to where it was something that was memorable and that could be long lasting. So um, we said, hey, well, won't we try it with brown sugar instead? Mm -hmm. And we tried it. Now, mind you, we had no idea how we were going to make this work or even how we were going to combine these things to create this recipe. So at first we were racking our brains trying to figure out what would be the recipe that we would create that not only we would enjoy, but everybody who tasted it would enjoy it as well. Now I got to tell you, I've had the <laughs> I've had Brown Boys lemonade on the program. These are two; they were little at the time. They're probably big now, but <laughs> they said their lemonade was was best. So at some point we'll have to have a lemonade, you know, standoff or something like that. But you all said so. You said you're gonna use brown sugar, okay? And then mm -hmm. what else? Oh, you have you have fancy lemons. Where are your lemons coming from? So that was another part. We wanted to figure out how this actually worked because we thought back to when we would be at our grandparents' house and I'm pretty sure we're all familiar with country time lemonade. So <laughs> that was so, your, that was your, I wanted her to measure country time. <laughs> well, country time, we, it, it was something that we, it, it just brought back those feelings of I, when you I were understand. Like I got you. Yeah. So we wanted to yeah. bring that, but also bring something fresh and something refreshing. And better. As well. Exactly. Okay. So we said, well, let's do fresh, freshly squeezed lemon juice because we saw that it tasted really good with, um, with Chick-fil-A's lemonade, but it was just inconsistent. So we said, well, how could we create that? 
and but also give them something new. Now, give it a little twist. I want y'all to get sued. In your opinion, you're saying Chick Fil A lemonade was inconsistent because folks love Chick Fil A lemonade and them fighting words mm-hmm. and all the emails I'm gonna send to you. So, okay, just to be clear, that is that is through your lens, right, Nakisa? You better help your your boy out here because he's about to get in trouble. No. No, it's fine. I think I think um, everybody has their preference, right? And I back to when you mentioned the brown boys. I do believe that if you are creating a product, that you are supposed to believe that your product is the best on the market. So I do believe with them when they say they think their stuff is the best on the market, and I think that that's how we feel too. And you know, of course, you have your loyal fans that will back that up, just like Chick Fil A. But for us, I think anybody can attest to this when you go to Chick Fil A or or any place that makes fresh lemonade and as in a in a larger batch type of way you go to one chick-fil-a you'll have one that is very consistent it'll be very sweet it'll be like perfect then you go to another location and it'll taste very watered down so uh, that's pretty much what he's saying very tart let's lead um, let's lead them alone because i know the folks over there they, they kind of cool jumping down our yeah, they don't, yeah, they, they nice. don't want they're my clean. smoke so let's leave it alone now all right. <laughs> you start your process you're bottling it it's going pretty good then this pandemic hits and then next thing you know y'all outside of Pond City market trying to sell you lemonade what 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 did the pandemic do to y'all in terms of you know trying to Pretty much you had to change how you your business model in a sense, right? So yes. to be honest, when we first launched, we were, I mean, by the time pandemic hit, we were only six months old. So, um, of course, during that time, it was a little different for us because we were still trying to figure everything out. None of, neither one of us come from a, you know, product-based background, creating something, putting it out. We, we didn't know how it all worked. And then, of course, the ports were backed up. Everything got... Mm-hmm held all of the inventory so that was one of our biggest hurdles when we did um come into into uh the pandemic however with us being out those are the farmers markets but that's community farmers market if if you guys are not familiar with that community farmers market it's a big thing it's Mm -hmm. one at ponce there's one in virginia highland there's one in eav the list goes on and on of how many there are so us being a part of the community farmers market has actually been a huge blessing um, and, and very, very fruitful for us because we're able to be have that one-on-one connection. Whereas in when pandemic first hit, we didn't have that. We couldn't do, can be face-to-face with our customers like we were when we first started back during the summer of 2019. So uh, being a part of the, yeah, everything was very digital. Once pandemic hit, we had to do what we had to, of course, like you said, pivot. We had to do a lot of deliveries. We had to do a lot of things that we wouldn't have necessarily done had uh, life still been the way that it mm. was because we had plenty of events to go to. We had things to show up to. We were able to touch our customers. So being at the community farmers markets gives us an opportunity to do that again. Choya, what have you learned as a business owner? Um, that might have been eye-opening to you throughout this whole process. And then, Nikisi, I'll ask you the same thing. I think the biggest thing that I've uh, retained from all of this is patience. Yeah. <laughs> patience. <laughs> patience, patience. And um, acting, following your instinct. Um, and I, I think that goes back to um, when the pandemic first hit, kind of being transparent with you guys um, in regards to our bottling um with us waiting on waiting to order bulk bottles um instead of just going ahead and making that decision when that happened the ports got backed up 
things just got very delayed. So it kind of affected our business and our revenue uh, substantially. So we had to kind of just search around and really find the right pricing for the bottles and also the availability of uh, people having them in stock. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, the biggest thing that I've learned out of all of this would definitely be having patience and um, being more proactive in that uh, in that sense. Lakisha, what about you? What have you learned as a business owner, a new business owner that's been eye-opening you about all of this? Definitely patience, but also uh, extending grace to not only myself and my partner, but to the people that we serve too, uh, extending it more to them because I think uh, everybody was going through so much at the time. And I think when pandemic hit, there were a lot of people wanting to support more black owned businesses during that time because there were riots, there were a whole bunch of things going on. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people were on edge because they were trying to support. And it was like, I'm giving y'all my money, not not just us, but in Mm -hmm. general, I'm giving y'all my money. So I need my stuff exactly when I need it and how I need it. So just extending grace to them, understanding that they're going through this just like we are and that their 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 sense of franticness, I suppose, um, was something that anybody could feel at the time. So just trying to do our best to meet the demand and just also um, realizing that, you know, we have to we have to always have a backup plan. You always have to have a backup plan. And we should note you all offer gluten free vegan friendly our engineer kevin he will love that you non-gmo so you're really trying to make sure you have you know beverages that everyone can enjoy and you got different flavors mm-hmm. yes now yes th- th- this this uh mango now you know <laughs> this mango brown sugar lemonade mango is one of those flavors if, if you don't do it right it's who came up with the mango sugar lemonade whose idea was that um, <laughs> I, I, I would like to say it was mine, but, but also when we come to each other, we bring each other flavor. Um, everybody has to, we both have to agree on it. One of us can't be like, yeah, maybe it has to be a team. We both have to agree on it and it has to be sold and it has to be delicious to both of us. All right. It is called Peach State Drinks, founded in 2019. Nikisha Pano and Choya Johnson, co-founders, and also uh, welcome to you both to the world of lemonade. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.